Let's pray together. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And Father, this gathering, this coming together that we do each week is part of that waiting. We gather here today uh, not to be entertained. We gather here today to meet with you in the privacy of our own hearts and in all the reality of our own lives. And so we pray that as we attend to your word today, as we attend to our lives, that there would be connections made between the two that send us from this place thinking new thoughts, feeling new things, wanting to know you more and determined to walk with you in the week that lies ahead. So hear our prayers because we ask them all in Christ's name. Amen. Every year at this time, we have the same argument in our house, and it's all because of Isla. <laughs> Isla's birthday is in late November. It was yesterday. And Isla likes to think that her birthday is in autumn, while other family members, family members I won't name but who now live in Glasgow, other family members take a special pleasure in winding Isla up and they insist that November is actually in winter. So I thought we could settle the argument once and for all this morning. We will let the good folk of Balhelvy Church decide. Hands up if you think November is the end of autumn. Hands up if you think November is the start of winter. Oh, for Pete's sake. I think that's about 52.48, I would say. I think there may have to be a second referendum, Isla. I can't judge that. We'll have to let the question remain open, I think. At the end of the day, to be honest, it really doesn't matter that much. Whether it's autumn or winter, this particular chunk of the year, Isla's birthday apart, is quite a bleak time for many of us, I think. If you're working, it's dark when you leave the house in the morning and it's dark when you come back home. You're having to turn up the heating in the house and dig out the hats and the scarves and the gloves again because the temperature is dropping. The wind has ripped all those beautiful autumn colours from the trees and those lovely leaves are now clogging up all the drains. Everything seems to be painted in a palette of greys, except on those rare days when a watery sun decides to make an appearance. Now the Christmas lights will bring a wee bit of cheer, but we haven't put them up yet. That's still a week or two away. I always think that this time of year, from Halloween through to Advent, is the mirror image of sort of the tail end of January when the fun is over and all the Christmas decorations are taken down and the house just looks bare and cold again. But what we feel at this time of year isn't just in our heads. There's biochemistry behind it. When light hits the back of our eyes, messages are sent to our brain which control sleep and appetite and sex drive and temperature and mood and activity. So when the levels of light are low, those functions may all slow down. 
About one in ten people in Northern Europe experience that kind of dampening of mood in wintertime, and for a small number of people, it becomes debilitating. Seasonal affective disorder is a recognized form of depression related to light loss, and it affects about 2% of the population in our part of the world. So it's not just in our imagination, this feeling that this is a difficult time of year. And if we are carrying loss or pain, the gloomy conditions outside us can accentuate the bleakness within us. Loneliness can start stalking us like a hungry dog. Old wounds can open up again. The future can end up feeling as grey and as impenetrable as a leaden winter sky, such as the one above our heads today. The bleak midwinter can cast a powerful spell over us. And that's why today I've chosen to use the poem that's printed in your orders of service. Peter Kielman, who was here a few years ago, Peter gave me uh, a book of poems, uh, a, a poem a day sort of through Advent, and I was, I've been reading my way through it already, even though we're not in Advent, and there's some great work there. But this poem today deals with these seasons in life where things feel dark and a bit down. And it's by D.H. Lawrence, and it's called Shadows. And I'm going to read it for you now, and I'd encourage you to follow it on the page as I read, because that hopefully will help you get the sense of what he's saying. This is Shadows. And if tonight my soul may find her peace in sleep and sink in good oblivion, and in the morning wake like a new opened flower, then I have dipped again, been dipped again in God, and new created. And if as weeks go round, in the dark of the moon my spirit darkens and goes out, and soft, strange gloom pervades my movements and my thoughts and words, then I shall know that I am walking still with God. We are close together, now the moon's in shadow. And if as autumn deepens and darkens, I feel the pain of falling leaves and stems that break in storms and trouble and dissolution and distress, and then the softness of deep shadows folding, folding around my soul and spirit, around my lips so sweet, like a swoon, or more like the drowse of a low, sad song, singing darker than the nightingale, on on to the solstice and the silence of short days, the silence of the year, the shadow. Then I shall know that my life is moving still with the dark earth and drenched with the deep oblivion of earth's lapse and renewal. And if in the changing phases of man's life I fall in sickness and in misery, my wrists seem broken and my heart seems dead and strength is gone and my life is only the leavings of a life. And still among it all, snatches of lovely oblivion and snatches of renewal. 
odd wintry flowers upon the withered stem, yet new strange flowers such as my life has not brought forth before, new blossoms of me, then I must know that still I am in the hands of the unknown God. He is breaking me down to his own oblivion to send me forth on a new morning, a new man. It's a deeply reflective poem, somber, but hopeful at the same time. And to give it some context, it's one of the last that Lawrence wrote before he died of tuberculosis at the age of just 45. There's no real meter or rhyme to it, but there are a few repeating ideas that get to the core of what he's trying to say. You might have noticed that the word oblivion crops up four times, and we need to take care not to misunderstand its meaning here. It doesn't mean annihilation. It means the losing of the self in something bigger, something other, and that can be a positive thing. Think about the way that you lose yourself in some hobby that you enjoy, walking, jigsaw puzzles, painting, gardening, music. You start into it and surrender to it, and before you know it, hours have slipped past and you didn't even realize you've forgotten yourself so completely. That's what Lawrence means here by oblivion, losing yourself completely in something other. And he starts the poem with a good form of oblivion restful sleep. We give ourselves up to sleep, lose ourselves completely in it, but we wake in the morning, dipped again in God and new created. By the grace of God, we find ourselves again. We lose ourselves in sleep each night, but we can also lose ourselves in our moods, which are much more changeable. Moods come and go like the phases of the moon. There are highs and lows, times of struggle and times of peace. And this cycle in our moods is part of the reality of human life. So when the spirit darkens and a soft, strange gloom seems to have taken over, he urges us not to think that we're abandoned or forgotten. We are walking still with God, he says, even in the darkness. We are close together. Now the moon's in shadow. And then in the next stanza, he ups the stakes again. Passing moods are one thing. But what about the deep darknesses of life that mirror autumn's descent into winter? The broken branches and the stripped leaves that reflect those seasons in life when dreams are broken and hopes cruelly stripped from us. When we labor on, not for weeks, but maybe months or even years because of some shadow that's fallen over our lives. What then? Well, then he says, I'll remember that my life is moving still with the dark earth. When I can't put one foot in front of the other, the earth itself and time itself will carry me onwards by the grace of God. I may feel like I'm standing still, 
making no progress. But time will prove otherwise. Time will change me. Just as time oversees the great, vast cycles of the earth, its lapse and renewal. And when we face the final challenge of life, the waning of our powers and the end of our days, Lawrence still sees reason to hope. There are still snatches of what he calls lovely oblivion, that happy self-forgetfulness that we were thinking about earlier, and signs of renewal too. New wintry flowers on the withered stem that have never been seen before. New blossoms of me, he calls them. And the poem ends with him ready to surrender to death in the same way that he surrendered to sleep, trusting that in the hands of God, that oblivion will see him waking on a new morning as a new man. The constant anchoring refrain of the poem is, and if, then, and if, then. And if speaks to all that seems to threaten our existence, the oblivions of sleep and moods, bad circumstances, sickness, aging, and death. And then is God's answering word, promising us that He will preserve us in those things. And if, then. And it would be easy to dismiss those lines, perhaps, the lines of D.H. Lawrence as the, the hopeful musings of a man on his deathbed. But isn't Jeremiah saying essentially the same thing in today's Bible reading from Lamentations? We sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness, earlier on, and I love that hymn, and there's another that I nearly chose for today called The Steadfast Love of the Lord Never Ceases. And they're both good songs with stirring tunes that pick up on Jeremiah's words from Lamentations. But neither song gives you a clue about the context in which Jeremiah spoke those words. There's a reason why the book of Lamentations is called Lamentations. Those of you with good memories will remember the date 587 B.C., from when we took an overview of the Bible a few years back and did a resource called The Story. 587 BC was the year that Jerusalem, the city of God, fell to the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar after a 19-month siege. In his preface to the book on Lamentations, Eugene Peterson says, it is impossible to overstate either the intensity or the complexity of the suffering that came to a head in the devastation of Jerusalem and then continued on into the 70 years of exile in Babylon. Loss was total. Carnage was rampant. The worst that can happen to body and spirit, to person and nation happened there. It was a nadir of suffering. During the siege, some mothers were forced to eat their own babies to survive. In despair, the army managed to escape from the city, but they were so weak they were rounded up and slaughtered wholesale. The king and his sons were captured, 
His boys were executed in front of him, and that was the last thing he saw because they then gouged out his eyes. Invading troops stalked the streets, murdering, raping, and looting at will, and burning the temple of God to the ground. The traumatized survivors were rounded up and marched off into captivity, and few, if any, ever saw their homeland again. And it's out of that context that Jeremiah says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah doesn't pretend away the awfulness of what's happened to him and his people, but he believes beyond all the evidence that there is still hope to be found, hope that's based in the character of God, his compassion, his love, and his faithfulness. And though, thank God, we are miles away from that kind of experience, I have seen similar faith here in our church community over the time that I've been here as your minister. A good number of you have suffered significant losses in life, things that could shatter a person, but somehow you've managed to keep the faith and to keep going. Those are stories worth hearing. And we're going to hear one of them now from Alan Jeffrey. I'm going to invite Alan to come up and tell us a wee bit of his story. Good morning. About nine years ago, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. We got the news in a small room in the hospital. There were maybe three or four medical professionals there. And one of them was a nurse who was carrying out some research into uh, cancer. She was a dear Christian friend of ours. And she made such a difference to our receiving that news. We didn't break down emotionally, but we just asked, what's the next step? How do we overcome this? Eventually, after a few tests, my wife underwent operation, she had a mastectomy, a reduction, she had chemotherapy, and finally radiotherapy. And it was a great day when we were told that there was no trace of cancer in her body. And we had a wonderful four years after that. But suddenly, the cancer had come back. It came back as secondary cancer, part in her liver, her lung, and a small part in her brain. Uh, we knew, well, we were told that she would have to take chemotherapy to deal with the cancer in her lung and her liver. Unfortunately, she couldn't get the chemotherapy as well as radiotherapy, which was required to treat the cancer in her brain. She had to have tests to see that she was okay to accept the chemotherapy. The first time, it took two weeks to get her in a position to accept it. Second time, it was three weeks 
to get uh, her in a position to accept the second dose of chemotherapy. The doctors said that this chemotherapy wouldn't get rid of the cancer. It would only keep it at bay. Meanwhile, the cancer in her brain would develop. And so it was a difficult situation that we were in. And she made a decision not to accept any further treatment because she didn't want to be kept alive by chemotherapy and then her brain uh, being eaten away. So it was a difficult decision to make and she just wanted to speak to some good Christian friends to tell them, tell them the situation and get their opinion. I was taking Rita Manns in to see Mary in the afternoon, walking along that long corridor in the hospital and just about to take a step to go into a different place. Then all of a sudden I heard a voice at the back, Alan! And I turned round and there was a, a dear Christian friend, we'd known him many years, he was professor of endocrinology and I explained the situation and immediately he went up to her ward and spoke to her and finally told her that he would have made the same decision if he'd been in her place. That afternoon, another dear Christian friend of more than 30 years, Ian Duffy, who's now the pastor at the King's Community Church in King Street, uh, He'd been a GP before he took up that position, and he's still a police uh, doctor. He went in to see her and gave the same opinion. And she really wanted to speak to an old gentleman, a wise old gentleman who came to faith late in life, but was on fire for Jesus. And when I was going in to see her that evening, who was walking across a car park at Jim Mack? the very person she wanted to see. His daughter was in the, the ward just below Mary, so he went up and spoke to her and gave the same opinion. And really, you can see where it's all coming from. Faith. And faith in the way that Jesus works in your life. God puts people there that you didn't think were going to be there, but they were. And all I can say to anyone who's in a similar situation, I know there are people who have a, a grief of bereavement, which is Red Rogers now. Some who are still, still struggling with it two years down the line. I know someone who's struggling with it a decade down the line. But really, I think what you've got to try and do is see where God is working in your life still. And one way of overcoming the loneliness and the grief is to become involved with other people round about. Go out and do things. It's too easy to sit in the house and just mope. That's not good for you. It's not good for anyone. You should really get out. And I give thanks to all these friends I have in this church here who support me in ways that you would never imagine. Because God loves me just the same as he loves you, just the same as he loves Mary. And I often think of phrases like, in my father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. 
and I remember, well done, good and faithful servant. These sort of phrases are real when you're facing hardship. I know that people have pain, not just through bereavement, but through illness and uncertainty of the future. They, they hurt because a marriage has broken down, because they don't know how they're going to get through the next month, because they don't have enough money. And so, if you're in one of these situations, or have been, then all I would say is don't lose the faith. Keep looking for God in your life, because he'll put people there that you need at that particular time. Thank you. Thanks very much, Alan. And I just echo what Alan said there as I look around the church this morning. I know that many of you, like him, have had hard knocks over the years. Uh, illness or death have visited your homes. People have walked out on you. Businesses have gone to the wall. Tragedy has landed on your doorstep. And for a while, you've been left reeling, wondering how on earth life can go on. But you have gone on. And maybe it's only the world's turning that has kept you moving, but you have gone on and somehow you've kept the faith rather than losing it. And here we are years later and by the grace of God, one day at a time, you've made it through, you've made it this far. What happened changed you, there's no question about it, but it didn't destroy you. You didn't let it have the last word. Another of our members who's lived through a very difficult experience of loss put it this way. They said, in the beginning, all I did was pray, 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 and pray in the hope that things would work out as I wanted them to, but it wasn't to be. It took a long time for me to realize that God was listening, but that he was responding in a different way to that which I had hoped for. Very slowly, he helped me return to living instead of just existing Getting back to work, helping out at church, taking exercise, and most of all, the love of my family have been my saving graces. And that's a good place to end, I think, with saving graces. And if then, said D.H. Lawrence, and if the worst happens, then what? Then grace sometimes surprising grace, the grace that may not save us from the cruel winter winds, but promises to see us through them. The grace that will help us slowly, faithfully, inch our way forwards into a spring that we never thought was possible. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word.